Hey gang, welcome back to another episode of Cannon Fodder. I'm Kyle. And I'm Rick. Welcome back, guys. Um, you know, as our world kind of remains in this uh, chaotic state of affairs, and, and a lot of us are either working from home or not working at all, uh, one of the things I bet a lot of us thought we'd have time for is to catch up on some of our unread stacks of comics. Uh, but then, all shipments of comics stopped, and then suddenly this hobby that we all care so much about has been put on ice, and we're kind of wondering what's next for the hobby, for the industry. Uh, so rather than listen to Rick and I babble about things we kind of know nothing about, uh, we thought it would be better uh, to bring in someone who knows the industry from the inside, both as a comic shop owner and as an author in his own right. Uh, so we're glad to be joined tonight by the owner of Chimera Comics and author of Magnificent to help us make sense of all this. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Carmelo Chimera. Thanks for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. The pleasure is all ours. Like I said, we we, we could have sit, sat here for the next two hours and just drooled and babbled and sound like a bunch of dilettantes about what's really happening out there. But <laughs> um, it is much better to get someone like yourself on to help us figure out, navigate these waters and, and kind of you know, a lot of us go to comic book shops, but we don't know how they work. <laughs> so I, I thought, oh. Maybe the yeah, the answer is poorly. Yeah, the answer is <laughs> not well. Uh, and I, I again appreciate the invite. I know my wife does because if you guys were going to babble without me, she's probably just glad to not have to listen to me babble for the next, you know, however <laughs> long we're on here. So she's had to listen to me every day of this of this lockdown so far. And uh, just like when I told her I was going to talk to someone other than her, she was just over the moon. So thanks for that. <laughs> it's a, again, the pleasure is ours. Uh, so I, I think. Perhaps it's maybe a bit handy just to give us a quick overview of what it's like at, when things are normal, what it is like in the comic book industry today, like the week to week grind of ordering new stock and managing that flow of books in and out of the store, like that balancing act of ensuring that you get enough for your customers, yet not ordering so much that you're stuck with this pile of unsellable books at some point. So are you able to walk us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's really, it's the kind of thing that's, I think there's a million ways to do it wrong, but it seems simple at first. Uh, the, the thing that's attractive about comic book stores generally is you have regular product in every week because of the nature of the periodicals. So your stock is always refreshed and your customers always have a reason to come back to the store. And that's something that you know, comic shops maybe even take for granted. Cause if you worked in any other kind of a business, if you sold shoes, for example, you would need to be up on the seasons and up on the trends and up on new products. But for us, there's no question. There's new stuff every month. There's new stuff every Wednesday. So you always get that, that repeat business. The way that we typically do things for those of you who don't know the, how it works, there's a single distributor in comic books called Diamond Comics Distributors. They have a monopoly. And the reason uh, the government doesn't get involved in that is because no one cares because our industry is too small. So Diamond with their monopoly is the only place we can order books um, by and large. And every month they put out a catalog called Previews. It's about 500,000 pages long. It has a 10 million items in it. We go through it and order from there. Uh, and then it's about two months before any of that stuff sees the, the shop. So that's, that's the, the 10,000 foot view of how it works. The, what that translates to in the day to day is, is a couple of challenges. One, 
and ordering stuff so far out, you're just guessing. You you can use your historical sales data to try to guess, but you're still ultimately guessing. Uh, you rely on a group of core subscribers, most stores call them, um, customers who get the same books every month. And so you sort of know that you're going to pre-sell a certain number of copies of, that are never going to hit the shelf because the same regulars are going to get them. Uh, and then that has its own challenges because those regulars don't always come in for the things that they're supposed to. And because you've ordered them two months in advance, you are on the hook for those. The third challenge is um, y you are, how do I put this? Unlike any other periodical, unique to any other form of newspaper or magazine, comic books are not returnable. So the the risk is entirely on the comic book store. Whereas, for instance, if you went to your local grocer and you look at the magazines, they do not pay for those. Those magazines are all sold on consignment. And when they don't sell, the jewel or wherever you like to shop will rip the cover off and send them back and get a, a credit. So uh, we don't enjoy that luxury. We just take it on the chin. Um, after all that, right, we're still working with one distributor. And that distributor calls all the shots uh, including any financing. And because they're not a particularly large company or particularly well-run company, <laughs> they also don't offer very much in the way of terms to anybody. Uh, for example, they don't offer more than net 14 terms to any retailer. And to, for example, if you were to talk about a Best Buy or something like that, or or maybe just to stick with our industry, uh, any other bookstore, the idea of having terms that aren't at least net 30 are absurd. So in other words, no matter how credit worthy you are or how big you are, Diamond needs their money within 14 days. What that means is for most of us, it's COD, it's cash on demand, which means you have to show up with certified funds uh, in small unmarked bills every Tuesday to pick up your, your comic books from the local distribution hub. Um, it's very difficult then, right? Because your business is super cash flow dependent. Um, you know, most comic book stores do not have a huge pile of, of cash. Most small businesses, I should say, and most retail businesses do not have a pile of cash that they sit on. So uh, it is very much cash flow dependent. Um, and that is the the 101 to selling comic books and, and scratching the, the tip of the iceberg uh, as to the challenges we face. And that's on a good day, right? That's a normal day. That's a normal times. Yeah. I mean, that's frightening. I, I, net 14 days. That's crazy. Yeah, that would be the best case scenario. Oh my god! Uh, I've been doing this for nine years, and I'm on. I'm still on COD. I'm still on cash on demand every Tuesday. Oh my god! So you really need those people that have pull lists at your shop. You need those people to show up either on the Wednesday or that that week desperately to come in and pick up their books. Uh, that is absolutely correct. And that's why most stores ask people to come in every two weeks or so. My store has historically been the word, the word I like to use is lenient. The truth is we probably just haven't been as good as, as we should have been about staying up on, like just following up with people. But the truth is some people don't come in for three weeks, a month, six weeks. And if you're the kind of store that lets people slide like that, like we are, um, you're, you're taking a huge hit to your cash flow. Even if they come in eventually, it doesn't help you week to week. It's like, if I told you your job was now going to pay you your salary every six weeks or every eight weeks, like I don't care how much money you make, or I don't care how much, how well you plan or want to save. Like 
the longer interval, the harder that is to plan for, right? That's really difficult. And then, of course, you have subscribers who just don't come and get their things. And and a lot of comic book stores have gone under. You've probably seen the viral posts of like stacks of books that subscribers say, oh, you know what? I, I can't get my stuff. And it's like, that's fine going forward. But I ordered and paid for this stuff for you months ago. So that's really uh, the difficulty. Um that that most stores face and you know i know that's kind of the the downer look but i think the i thought that the 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 question was what are the challenges on a day-to-day basis so uh so that's why my my answer was sort of negatively focused no i mean it's not really negative it's just it's it's realistic right because like i for me like my my comic book shop and people listen to this podcast i'm always complaining about this but my local comic book shop closed up years ago they and then they, they went to uh mail delivery only and then that finished so my local comic book shop now is about an hour away so i only go there very irregularly and now with this lockdown i don't know he's closed for the next three to four months but like i'd go once a month at best sometimes it would be six mm-hmm. or seven weeks so like yep. i feel bad now like I feel, i'm like oh man like He's sitting there waiting for me to come pick up my stuff and it's just sitting there. But at least he's not my brother and everybody knows <laughs> that my brother will leave stuff <laughs> collect for God knows. And we're talking a lot of titles. <laughs> oh, man. Is that- yeah. And there's some customers where like if they communicate with you and, you know, like we've had customers who like are in the military, for example, and they say, hey, I'm going to be out of town for 180 days at a time or whatever. But like, you know, I'll, I'll come in when I'm when I'm on leave. Well, when we know that in advance, it's easier to plan around. You know, if every subscriber did that, we wouldn't have a business. But you know, we, we, we've had customers who were with us for years who then, you know, after nine years of being open, I've seen kids go from being like in eighth grade, 13 year olds to leaving for college. Right. I've gone through some, some customers I've have been with me ever since they were adolescents. So when they go off to college, we give them a break, you know, oh, they're, they're gone for the semester. Who cares? You know, we're very understanding about those things. It's just that, uh, you, you get hung enough times with stuff and, and you get enough people who, who are accumulating things. The real ones that uh, I think do a lot of damage are uh, you get a lot of people who subscribe to just maybe one comic book and it's 90 percent of the time it was Batman or Walking Dead back when Walking Dead was still around. And that would be the only book they would get. And the reason that's dangerous is because it was hard to tell if they hadn't been in in a while. Now, if you've got a computerized point of sale system, you might be able to like pull up a list of, of when the last time customers were in. But to just glance at their folder when you pull the books every Wednesday is the best way to see like who has been in in a while. And if they only get one book, it'll be three or four months before you realize that they have a lot of stuff in their box because you won't notice the single comic book. Well, if you have 10, 20 customers who do that, now you have yourself a real issue and, and that that's a sneaky, you know, it tends to get by you. Yeah. There's a couple hundred, a few hundred bucks tied up there. Exactly. Yeah. Man. Um, so I guess before we get too deep, I mean, this is, this is sort of a, a fun spot to insert this, but you gave away a comic book store about a year ago. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the, I, you know, it's funny. My, uh, my wife was at some marketing thing at, uh, at school. She's in grad school and they had someone there was uh, a PR expert was telling them about marketing stuff. And, uh, it came up that, 
that I owned a comic book store and the PR expert was like, oh, do, I bet your husband was, uh, he must have been really excited about that comic shop giveaway last year. Was, uh, was, is that something he was interested in? What do you think about that? And in this room of like 50 people, <laughs> my wife was like, oh, well, actually, that was him. Uh, so that always cracks me up. When people hear about that. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I, I had my 15 minutes of fame last year when I gave away, uh, my second store. So at one time I had three stores, I closed one of them. And the second one I gave away in an essay contest, uh, 500 words or less. What, uh, what makes a great comic book store. And I gave the, the store away to the winner based on merit, based on the essay. And, uh, and he's doing, he, well, until this COVID stuff, he was doing great and we get along really well. We, we continue to do business together and, and, you know, refer customers and things like that and exchange product. But, uh, you know, then he had to shut down as well. He's immunocompromised. So he had to, he had to shut down way earlier than anybody else. Um, when, when we did, but yeah, that was, so that that's my, my most recent claim to fame was that, that comic shop giveaway. That's super cool. Like, and, and for a while you had the Willy Wonka moniker, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. And it goes really well because my name's alliterative, you know, Carmelo Chimera, <laughs> Willy Wonka. And you know what the fun, the funny thing about it was like when I, when I did it at the time, um, you know, it was, so it was somewhat controversial. There were a lot of people who thought I was a scam artist or that it was bullshit. And I got hate mail even from some people. Um, the, the vast majority of people thought it was awesome and told me they loved it and said a lot of nice things, but there were a lot of people who were naysayers. And the funny thing is like, I did it. I gave the store away and where do they go? They just disappear. The, the, the haters, the, the trolls online, you know, when they're wrong, they never admit they're wrong. They just vanish. They just uh, disappear like Homer Simpson into the hedge. Yeah. And you never hear delete the tweets, delete the Facebook post. Right. Right. And it's like, no one's like, Oh gee, I misjudged you or whatever. It's just like, Oh, I, I guess my negativity wasn't welcome here. Cause that's, you know, part of the reason I did the whole thing was to try to make the world a little bit more positive of a place. And, uh, you know, like people would, you know, they came out, call me a scam artist. And then I did an AMA on Reddit and none of them showed up. No one, no one was there because people, some people just, uh, it's just easier for them to tear you down than to build themselves up. Negativity spreads as you know, Rick and I spend a lot of time online in the star Wars fandom and boy, oh boy, is it, it's just so easy to be negative. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially in star Wars. It seems like my favorite joke about it is that no one hates star Wars as much as star Wars fans. And it's, it's true. Moniker, yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh my God. Can they get really pissed off? And, uh, you know, I like, I like star Wars enough where I'll see every star Wars thing that comes out, but not so much, not the way I am with like superheroes or things like that, where I know it inside and out. So what I'm saying is I'm probably a lot easier to please than most star Wars fans. So, you know, I'll leave a movie and be like, Oh, that was pretty good. And everyone around me is just like, Oh, this ruins it. This is terrible. It's a sacrilege. I'm like I thought it was good. <laughs> I was entertained. Okay. I thought that was yeah, enough. I thought it was fun. I really like the lightsabers. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, so yeah, it's like one fandom that I'm like in, but not like head first in. So I think it's a scary fun. place. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I used to be part of a various sports fandoms and I thought those were scary places, but star Wars fans, they're, they're right there, man. Star Wars fans are right there. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, Carl, yeah. If I can jump in, uh, <laughs> Carmelo, let's let's go back and let's hear your uh, 
let's hear Carmelo Chimera issue number one. What's your origin story? How did you get into comic books? And what led to wanting to own a shop on your own? Well, um, when I was very little, my father would buy me uh, comic books. And uh, I remember my first comic book was Amazing Spider-Man 375. And uh, the, it's now it's not worth the paper it's printed on, but it's worth something to me. <laughs> In any case, um, he used to bring me home video cassettes of like the old Marvel cartoons from the 80s or even the 60s. And they were like, that was the only thing you could get on VHS. And this is before the 90s X-Men or 90s Batman or Spider-Man. So like when that stuff came out, it was like a renaissance. But it's really my dad and my and my cousin, who was a huge uh, Superman fan, who who got me into comic books and superheroes. And um, actually, I went uh, I, I started working at the local comic book store in high school uh, where I met my my longtime uh, partner, Stephen Brown. And I went off to college and, and wrote a graphic novel, Magnificent, which you mentioned earlier. And I called Stephen and he had gone to the American Academy of Art. And I said, Stephen, you want to you know, draw this comic with me? So we worked on it for years, uh, but the our high school comic book store was kind of uh, you know, in dire straits and it wasn't doing so great. And at one in the morning, one night, he called me up and asked me out for coffee in the middle of the night. So I knew it was going to be good. And he said, why don't we uh, open our own store? And I don't like to say no to things unless I know like what the options are. So we looked into it and it turned out it was very doable. Um, I probably shouldn't have though. I should have told him to go screw himself because it was my first year of law school. And so I probably should have just focused on that. But uh, I ended up I did successfully finish law school, became an attorney while opening uh, the stores. Actually, by the time I was done with law school, I had I had my first two stores. Um, and the comic books were sort of like a great outlet for me creatively because, uh, you know, legally um, that work is fun, but not necessarily creatively rewarding uh, all the not in the way comic books are. So uh, we did finally finish our graphic novel, Magnificent. We were successfully crowdfunded in on Kickstarter. And uh, since then, I've crowdfunded seven or eight projects, some for myself, some for like clients. I've raised over $120,000 on Kickstarter uh, across wow. a few projects and, um, you know, still have a few more on the way. Now, you'll also find me as the the co-host of the Cult Classic Horror podcast, as well as uh, um, I'm an author of a, another graphic novel called Cellar Door. And uh, I just finished directing a feature film called Sin Eater, which should be out later this year. So I've finally made myself a creative career. Sounds like you've got your uh, your hands in a lot of pots there, man. Jeez. Yeah, that's uh, actually the second time I've heard that today. Um, and I'm working <laughs> on a new uh, working on a new comic book as well that'll be out in the next uh, couple of weeks, actually. So I'm excited about that too. Okay, now for for people listening. Uh, once this hits, um, I sh I shop at Chimera's Comics. I've been going there since the beginning of 2015, I think. And for me, the catalyst was when uh, the Star Wars mainline relaunched and the new comics line relaunched through Marvel. And that was like, for me, it was an all or nothing venture to get back into Star Wars comics because, you know, that's the bulk of my fandom. But when I was younger, you know, there was a comic book shop um, close to where I grew up that I would go to. And, you know, being in my teens, I didn't have money a lot of money, but I, you know, I was able to pick and choose books every now and again. And I had an uncle that owned a shop in the early nineties around the time of um, like when image comics launched and when Superman 75 hit. And I remember going to, again, my uncle's shop and this other shop and, you know, being a kid who didn't, you know, wasn't athletic and wasn't, you know, I mean, I had friends, but like, you know, you celebrating geek to was a little bit different 
in the 1980s. Yeah. And, you know, now, you know, where it's, it's big business in a different way. And having a comic book shop be a focal point, a hub of, you know, gathering people together to talk about their interests or, you know, whatever creative ventures, you know, I mean, that you hear stories all the time. Like, you know, I met so-and-so at a comic book shop and we decided to write something or we decided to film this thing or we decided to open up our own place. Um, having the shops that you've had, now you've, you've said you had three and I know with Chimeras here locally, you, you moved into a new location last year or a year and a half ago. Um, what's it like, you know, when, when you do have the time to come into the store and talk to people, like what, what's the feeling that you get knowing that there's this little community that, that has that kind of a place? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, um, I, I think I can best answer that with a little anecdote. I go through, because I'm so you know, torn in so many directions. I go through phases where if I'm losing passion for something, you know, I, I think seriously about giving it up. And, uh, and that was part of the reason I gave the store away last year was split too thin. I had just taken a job at an AM 100 law firm and I was like, I'm, I have one store too many. And, you know, I got to tell you, even about uh, about two months ago, three months ago, before all this started, I was feeling it again. I was feeling tired. And I thought, you know, I was just about to direct this movie and I knew I wanted to spend time on that stuff. And I thought, uh, maybe I'm done with uh, with the comic book store. Maybe, I, you know, if I'm not the best person to do it, I'm not doing anybody any favors. And then when this happened, we started doing the curbside uh, pickup and delivery um, for the short window in which we were able to do that, which we could talk about in a minute if you want. But in any case that allowed, that gave me the opportunity where I called every single subscriber, right? I got everybody's number and I personally called every single one of them, including you. And that's why, why we're here today. And, uh, mm -hmm. I got the chance to ask people, oh, how are you doing? Is everyone healthy? And then I got to you know, tell them where the store was at, offer them the, you know, uh, delivery, so forth and, and just catch up. And after talking to oh, I don't know, 120 regulars over the course of like three days, uh, and every single subscriber said something to me, like, I really love your store, or I hope you make it through this, or let me know if there's anything I can do. Uh, it's so nice to have a neighborhood comic book shop. I mean, it was just an overwhelming outpouring of, a love and affection for the local comic book shop as well as people who were genuinely interested in, in me and what I was doing and people I wanted to hear from who I hadn't talked to or seen in months. And I, you know, by the end of those calls, I was like, I can't give this up. This is, this means too much to too many people. And I felt really like invigorated again, you know, and immediately I had a meeting with my business partner and we shot, shot around like 15 ideas of, ways to do things better once we come back from, from all this. And, uh, so I got really fired up. So to answer your question, uh, you know, it's just very tangible. You can see what it means to people and you can see what that, that there's something about coming together to share the things we love that there's no substitute for. And I think that's what the comic book store does. Yeah. I mean, that, that, well, I, that's so well said because like, sure, we all congregate online. That's I think, you know, globally, communities can form in these online places but in person it can it's so much different to be in those little we call them nerd little hubs of nerd community like to yeah to, to be staring somebody in the face and, and walk over to a to a, a rack and, and pull a book off the rack and say you got to get into this book and here's why and you don't get that online you can try but you can't replace that that person-to-person -person feeling 
Yeah, there's there's never been a suitable substitute for it. And, you know, I, even even in the months and years where I have been physically in the store less, my favorite times were every year at a minimum we rent out a movie theater and we we take our our favorite customers to go see um, you know, whatever the biggest movie of that year is usually and there's just like I can stream this stuff at home or I can even go to the movie theater. There was some sort of energy around being in a theater full of people who are all connected and all loved the same thing, who, who, who caught the same Easter eggs and laughed at the same jokes and pointed out the Stanley cameo. Like that was such an amazing feeling to be around those people and to know we all shopped at the same store and we all cared about the same space. And there's just nothing quite like it. In fact, I'm getting choked up thinking about it because I, I, the store's not there now. Movie theaters aren't there now. And all these things that maybe we took for granted. And I just can't wait to have them back and do it again. Yeah, I, I, mean, I had a similar experience not too long ago. And it's, it's tangentially related to comic book stores. But uh, um, Kevin Smith recently had uh, his, his latest movie come out, uh, Jane Silent Bob Reboot. And at some point he made the choice that it there's not going to be theatrical distribution for this, but he's going to take it on the road. And so my mm. wife and I got tickets and we said, you know, we're going to go see this. We don't go out too often with two little kids. It's impossible, but we're going to go do this. Like we love Kevin Smith. We love his sense of humor. He's one of the people who shaped my sense of humor. And so to go to this, this, uh, it's like a proper theater. It's not, not necessarily a movie theater. And he comes out and he does this whole thing. But all these people, there's, you know, there's several hundred people in this theater. And you know, they're all Kevin Smith diehards. And so when that movie comes on and that movie is just stuffed with those little Easter eggs and cameos and everybody's like giggling or laughing or shouting and clapping when, you know, random X person comes on the screen that nobody else would pick up on. But you remember from clerks in 1994 that this person was in that move first movie and it, it comes it's, it's all come back around so yeah for sure like that sense of community and, and being with like-minded people it, it's it there's an energy there that you just can't duplicate online that is i i can attest to to a couple of those screenings um i want to say i've been to maybe two or three of them through the shop uh, i know we saw deadpool and mm, Trying to remember what was before that. Maybe one of the Avengers movies. I don't remember if you did. Uh, we did. Um, War. We did. Uh, we did do Infinity War. So maybe it was Infinity mm -hmm. War that you were there. I definitely remember uh, Deadpool two together. Uh, I remember seeing that right. Um, yeah, and 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 when when you walk in there and you know the way you have it, you send out an email and it's kind of like, hey, you're a VIP and you're important. Da 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 da. And you get there and like I remember going like that to see Deadpool and I was like, man, he's got this list and it's like. I, for something about it to me, like it felt like uh, there was like a, like a weird kind of like formality to it, but in a good way of like, oh, like you're on the list. You're on my guest list for this movie. Let me check you off. And like nobody else can get in. And then once you get in there, like you said, and everybody is there as a part of this community. And, you know, for for people like myself, you know, if I wasn't talking to other customers, it was whoever was behind the counter. Um, if you, you know, if you, I'm going to say some names that people don't know, but we know like when Danny was there or David now, um, you see them in the theater and then you talk about it afterwards, what the experience was like, because you know it's one thing to say, like, did you see the movie? And you're like, oh yeah, it was great when this happened. But when everybody sees that movie at the same time and you yeah. talk about like 
what that singular experience was when everybody was there together. And I've always thought it was a really cool thing that you guys did through the shop um, to to show the appreciation that way for customers that were coming in on, on a regular basis and stuff. So I can say it was it was appreciated. The only person who didn't like it was my son because he couldn't go see Deadpool because it was rated R. And uh, <laughs> he, was, he, he, he wasn't happy with us that we got to go. Um, but there was no way in hell we were going to take him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forget about it. With that's not even on the line, that one. Uh, well, I appreciate that very much. That means a lot to me. And, and I think that goes to the core of kind of what we love about comic book stores to begin with is, and I think maybe what this whole self-isolation thing has taught us about people in general is I think we do like to be together. I think we need to be together for a lot of reasons. Um, and I think when you feel that connectedness, um, in some ways, that's what it truly is to be a human. And so I, I really love being able to, to deliver uh, some space that does that. Yeah. And, and yeah. taken to a, to a, uh, I guess a larger degree comic cons, right? Like we've got the comic exactly. cons are everywhere now. And like at least once a week, you see, you learn of a con that's either been postponed or, right. or outright canceled. And like for in the Montreal comic con that we're looking forward to this summer, we have events canceled right through like public gatherings are canceled right through July 2nd at this point. And Montreal comic con is scheduled to start July 3rd. And it's oh like, Oh my God. And every so often they post to their Facebook page, you know, yeah, we, we, we were still hopeful to have the event. And as much as I, I, I love the event dearly, I go as often as I can, but I, I just want to say like, guys, maybe it's just time to wrap it up. Like, even if they do lift the ban on July 2nd, how many people will have the confidence to go on July 3rd? Oh my God. You know, it's right. And I know you want to No, I think practically speaking, there is no 2020 convention season. I really think that's true. Cause for, I think you're exactly right. I mean, maybe if it was August 3rd, September 3rd, but you're right. The day after they lift that, everyone's going to want to go get in a crowded space. Like, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I get they're trying to hang in there and, you know, Vendors have already paid the money and people may have already booked and it's probably logistically very difficult to suddenly start reversing all that. But you do it now. Or yeah. Do it later. And, you know, there is like, there is kind of a legal wrinkle to it as well. And, and some of this is a little bit of speculation. One, I don't know anything about Canadian law. And two, I don't know that what makes their two contract looks like. <laughs> but it's quite it's quite possible that their contract has provisions in it that will allow them to. Uh, recoup their deposits or or somehow get less liability or get some kind of refund if they are forced to cancel. So uh, the, you might call those like a force majeure act of God clause or even like an eminent domain clause can sometimes be used for this sort of thing. So they may be in a position where they cannot financially cancel the convention. Otherwise, they will like take the whole thing on the chin and uh, and maybe wouldn't survive that. So you might that might be the reason. I can't say for sure. I don't know what their agreement looks like with their, their venue. Um, and I don't know if Canadian contract law has similar – I assume it has some similar foundational principles. Um, but yeah, that, that could be the reason they haven't canceled. Yeah, good to know. I had an angle I had not considered. Um, so as an author, like yourself as an author and a comic book creator, and I'm you know, I'm sure you you know other comic book creators, this work stoppage, this slowdown, how is it affecting yourself and affecting them from that creativity standpoint? Like is it still 
do most people just keep writing and letting that those stories pile up or have most people most creators gone on pause as well because of this yeah that's a good question and i think i can so speaking generally for a lot of creators um and i think it's probably true that most creators in the industry are either involved in or predominantly are are in the indie space. I think it's a minority that works in, you know, like Marvel and DC, right? So I think for most creators, this has been devastating because for most creators, their uh, primary source of revenue is often conventions, is often in-person stuff, whether that be, you know, commission sketches at conventions or if it's just, you know, they sell their own creator own work. Uh, you just never do any better than when you do it yourself in person and can meet people and shake hands. And uh, so for a lot of them, this has been an enormous uh, hit um, on the business end. On the creative end, I don't know that I can speak for everybody, but from what I see in my circles and from what I experience uh, is this stuff does not stop the creative flow. Um we create things because we have to, not always because we want to. Um, Plato called it being pregnant with an idea. And that's exactly what it feels like is you just have to make stuff. You have to write. You have to draw. So th- whether or not there's an audience for it is sometimes only ancillary. It might motivate you to get it done quicker. But, yeah, when you're locked away in, you know, in COVID America – you are still writing and you are still and you are still creating. Now, I do know some creators because another thing that is um, not categorically true, but is unfortunately often true is creators often suffer from from mental illnesses, probably in the same or greater percentages as the greatest as the population at large. Specifically, I'm referring to like anxiety or depression, these things that that a great number of people suffer from. And I think it's it's very prevalent in the artistic community. Creative minds, I think, are very given to that sort of thing. And so I personally have felt it uh, where being indoors all the time or, or not being around people uh, can sap my energy. I'm a bit of an extrovert. And I can definitely feel that. And I, I also get it a little bit seasonally myself. I get a little bit uh, seasonal affective disorder. But then I know other people who are just totally defeated. Their their symptoms are are super aggravated by this these circumstances. Their anxiety is through the roof because we're we literally are looking at you know a, a, an extinction level event potentially. So for some of these poor folks, they can't make anything right now. Um, and I, I really feel for them because I, I, I can see how that would be paralyzing. So that's kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly of being a creator right now. Yeah, I guess, yeah. You know, talking about that, uh, sorry, Kyle, talking about that, that extinction level event, you know, from an industry standpoint, last year, you know, I was looking at some numbers. Um, the New York Times had uh, an article a few days ago where comic book sales, print sales, um, in the U.S. and Canada was a – comic books are a billion-dollar industry, um, essentially, and about a third of that comes from printed material, you know, phys- physical material. About $100 million every year, according to this article, is in the digital space. I'm assuming a lot of the other revenue from that coming in is um, licensing and other merchandising that has, you know, a DC or Marvel label on it, something like that. Um with the advent of digital books, um, is did you see have, have you seen numbers trend down at all in the store since you, you know you've been there for almost ten years? Um, you know against physical sales. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question because when I first opened, people cautioned to me that things were about to go totally digital. Comicsology, I think, had just started um, recently when I opened the store, so um, people were like, "Oh, this is it! It's going to go all digital." And then you know, ten years have passed, and and physical books are still around. Um, has there been a decline? Absolutely, absolutely. It's not unique to comic book stores retail, you know, nationwide has been just on a, a steady downward decline for years. They called 2017 the retail apocalypse. And then in 2018, more stores closed, um, than in any year in, in United States history. So that's retail generally. So how much of it is retail generally versus comic books specifically? I guess I can't say for sure, which makes it really difficult to pinpoint if digital is the reason sales decline. Uh, but sales definitely declined. And when I look at numbers like the New York Times article you just referenced, that's actually very illuminating because I cannot think of any business where I could take away a third of your revenue and your business would thrive. Um, right. So if, if, if one third of a billion dollar industry is still uh, print and based on the numbers you've put forth, um, three times as much as digital, right? So I, what, if I remembered the numbers, right, it was a third being print. So that's 300 million, give or take. And then 100 million if it was digital. So now we're at 400 million and then at least 600 million for like the licensing and some of these other revenue sources. So I don't think one, I don't think you can cut a third out from under that. So I don't see them going, um, all digital anytime soon, though COVID might force that because now you don't have the print avenue. So maybe it's like, this is the catalyst for that. It's possible. Um, the other thing is what kind of effect on that 600 million, which we agree licensing is probably some major part of, um, what kind of effect is that, um, if we took away the print, right? Is the print stuff feeding the value of the IPs? such that the rest of the $600 million a year is, is coming from that. Um, cause if so, I still don't see getting rid of print then because now, now print's even more important. And that's sort of my, my, again, that's the 10,000 foot view. That's the kind of overview of the whole thing. I think. Is there, so any... now with quick question, I'm sorry, Kyle, with, so with... go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I don't want, do you think movies like MCU movies, DC, do you think there's any, possibility that the movies are actually in some way eating comic books lunch so to speak like that people are going huh ah you know what yeah. I'm, I'm good with just watching these movies once a, you know they come out once a month now i'm good with that and then they just don't buy the the books is that is that something that you can measure or that you've seen boy that's a really good question because i don't really know how i would i don't know how i would measure that for sure the theory I have never considered before. And I admit you've got me stumped. That could well be the case. And, and there is no shortage of superhero media out there, whether it be in television form or movie form. So uh, you, you're, you may be onto something. However, I would say, and this is purely anecdotally, uh, what I've noticed is that when a movie comes out, it does tend to reinvigorate interest in that property. So for example, you know, 10 years ago when I first opened the store, if I could only sell Ant-Man comics and Black Panther comics to survive, I would have been closed very quickly. And now I cannot keep Black Panther on the shelf. 
and even Ant-Man comics, like people are – kids are coming in looking for old Ant-Man stuff that I could have never sold 10 years ago. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy is another great example. You know, Rocket Raccoon is a household name. My mom knows who Rocket Raccoon is, so I sell mm. Rocket comic books. And that's not a thing I could have done before that movie. So – if I look at it character by character, I could say that anecdotally the theory is not true. But I admit, globally speaking, um, it may well be the case that uh, um, the movies are replacing the interest in the in the reading material. Hmm. I I, I kind of hope that's not true. <laughs> to be to be quite honest, because I think yeah, the I, comics I, are just they they're they're like the wellspring of the movies. We you need you need that material to kind of feed the films. Well, that's exactly right. That's what I was I was trying to say before, but you said it better than I did, which is if, you know, uh, uh, 60% of your revenue comes from licensed material, licensing material out, then you really do need that foundational third of the print comic books to, to spur that. Otherwise, um, I mean, look, we see it all the time, right? You see IPs that were popular or are popular, but they don't stay in the cultural mindset. So no one ever does anything with them. I'll give you a great example. The movie Avatar, the highest grossing movie of all time until Avengers Endgame. And what uh, what did Avatar do? What came of that? Not, there's nothing. It's been 11 years. There's no cultural footprint. There's no conventions. There's no cosplay that I've ever seen. There's no action figures. There's no cartoon. There's no television series. There's no novels. There's no comic books. There's nothing. Nothing came of it. And because of that, that IP is, I would argue, um, dead. Can they make a sequel now and revive interest? Of course they can. But my point is Avatar as like a functioning intellectual licensable property is gone. So whereas if you look at something like Star Wars that's constantly alive and has this thriving expanded universe in the books for years, even before Disney bought them, uh, you know, it led to – there, there wasn't that long of a gap between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace. It probably seemed like it was, but it really isn't that bad. And in the meantime, we had video games and comics and books that kept it alive. Um, that's then that's why Star Wars is still probably the single most valuable IP like on the face of the planet Earth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I Rick, I know I cut you off earlier. Sorry about that, but uh, <laughs> take it away, man. Well, no, what I was going to ask, like, uh, as far as uh, merchandise in the store that you have, you know, you've, you know, you've obviously you got rat racks of books that are there and back issues. And then, you know, all of the other merchandise that, that comes through, you know, Funko Pops and, and things like that. Um, it, last year, you had somebody come in and I, you guys bought a lot of like Silver Age books from a single person, if I'm not mistaken. Um when you take stuff like that in uh, for resale, how does something like that affect your margins against, you know, just your week and week, you know, week after week new releases? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because the the collectible books are something that when I first opened, I wasn't really interested in doing. Sales trends suggested that graphic novels were on the rise and I wanted to put my money in graphic novels. Um, and... Uh, over the years, I've realized that that's that was foolish, and I should not be ignoring the the valuable back issues. So we we now have a, a regular stock of those, and we're constantly refreshing the stock of those. But what that does, like margin wise, you know, I think the stereotype for comic book stores is that 
you know, you'll buy, you swindle some old guy out of a stack of his books for, you know, 50 bucks. And then you've, you've got a $15,000 comic book in there that actually a, a situation like that happened to us. When we first opened, someone came in with a stack of books, but we told him the truth. You could Google this. This happened. We told him exactly what was in there. It was amazing fantasy 15. He had a no. $10,000 copy of that book and we sold it for him on consignment. So our cut was substantially less. Um, but we told him straight up, sir, you just, you know, you, you won the lottery here with this and he was the original owner. Yeah. His name was scribbled in it in pencil from when he was like five years old in 1962. Seriously. So yeah, yeah. His name was George Toman and, uh, he let us sell it for him because he appreciated our honesty. So, you know, you do stuff like that. That really, honesty really cuts into that margin, it turns out. And so for us, for us, what we, what we typically try to do is, um, you know, I'll do it one of two ways. I'll do it on consignment and consignment is a much bigger percentage to you. And it's probably closer in our case to like 50, 50. And I don't know what my competitors do and maybe I shouldn't give away my percentages, but I don't really care. Um, I only compete with myself is how I look at it. So, you know, 50, 50 consignment. And the idea is though, that the risk and the time is shared equally between the customer and the store. And because you've allocated risk and time in that way, then the customer gets more money. But if the customer wants money now, if they want it faster, that means that the risk of the book not selling is all on the retailer and the time is all to the benefit of the customer, right? You can you can arrange a deal that way, but then you just now you just pay for that, right? Like every part of you can pay for any part of the deal that you want. So that means that the margin is has to be thicker. And, and it's not just a question of, well, then the customer gets less. It's a question of the store says, well, look, if I spend, I mean, let's, let's say I spent a thousand dollars to buy a $10,000 comic book and you say, well, Carmelo, that's amazing. You're gonna make $9,000. You know how, how often I'd sell a $10,000 comic book. It could take me two years to sell a $10,000 comic book. So mm -hmm. That could be a, a huge amount of my cash, $1,000 in my example, and these numbers are hypothetical. But, you know, that is a huge amount of my cash that could be tied up in a single item on my shelf for potentially years, but definitely an unknown amount of time. And now I'm taking that risk, right? So that means my margin has to be thicker because when that book finally does sell, it needs to pay for a hundred other books that didn't sell, if that makes any sense. So when you, when you have the older books, yeah, the, the margin has to be better. It, it has to be way better than 50, 50. It has to be at least, um, I would say at least 70%. I can't imagine a comic book store that pays more than 30% of what the comic ultimately sells for. And in, in most cases, probably far less. And I guess what I'm saying is the realities of the business are, that that's a good deal. That's a fair deal. If I sell mm -hmm. a new comic book, it's 50, 50. And that's, that's the minimum margin you need to make in retail because realistically that $2 profit I made on that comic book has to pay my employee, has to pay my electrical bill, has to pay my rent. Like a 50% margin is not enough for a store to survive. So you do need those areas where your margins are way thicker. Um, and I, 
philosophic, like a business philosophic philosophy is that I think you need really thick margins on really high ticket items and really low ticket items, high ticket items, because you're, you're so much cash is invested in it. So the margin has to be big to be worth it. And then low ticket items, because if I were making, you know, 50 cents on every can of soda I sold, why would I even bother selling soda? Like what a pain in the ass that is to go get another soda vendor and <laughs> pay them and like, and then do the ordering and keep up on that shit. Like you, you wouldn't do it for 50 cents. So you better make, you know, that's why you, you sell a bottle of water for a dollar and it only costs you 10 cents because if you're not making almost a hundred percent profit, then who cares about the dollar? So that's kind of my business philosophy in terms of where your margins need to be. But I don't know. I don't think I'm a particularly good businessman, so I wouldn't really listen to me. <laughs> You've been there for nine years, so you're doing something right. <laughs> I guess so. Well, this is, again, something that's probably somewhat related. So in your experience having three shops in your in your career, have you had to deal with these, air quotes, customers who are more like speculators, like these people that just show up? Because they've heard of a particular comic on the shelves this week that have first appearance of somebody or it's an issue one of something that might be really hot. Do, are, are, are those type like what do you what are generally uh, general opinions of that type of customer? Have they always been there or was there like a like a big bang moment for that type of customer? I think there's always been speculators to a point and I think there always will be. Um I think there are just as many or more good natured sort of looky loos who are, um, you know, let's take for example, a customer like Rick who like only buys or not only, but like predominantly his interest is in Star Wars products. Customer like that comes in back in 1993 and hears that Superman has just died and there's a death of Superman and says, I don't normally read Superman comics, but as a comic fan, that really interests me. I want to see what's going on with that. And so, you know, Rick, my Star Wars guy, would grab a copy of the death of Superman. I use this example because that would long predate Rick and I knowing each other. So it's a totally fictional example. But that would be like you'd expect that and that wouldn't be anything weird. No, no stigma around that. Rick just wanted to try something new. They caught his eye. Right. Um, and I think there's more people like that than there are speculators. Why do I lump that together? Well, that's because there is a systemic problem in the industry that both of those things tap into, which is the way I am sold comic books as a retailer is garbage. Um, I don't have a sales rep from any publisher because let's, so let's go back to 1993 and, and back then you probably did have a sales rep. Um, someone would have called me and said, Hey, Carmelo, I'm so-and-so from DC comics. Uh, Superman's going to die in issue 75. Do you want to order any more of those? We expect the book to be pretty hot. I would say, Oh my God. Yeah, that sounds great. Give me double my normal order. Give me triple. Cause now I can actually make some money on it. And when Rick picks up his copy cause he's interested or when some speculator comes in and picks up a copy cause he's interested, I'll have them and then I can sell them and make money. And you'll recognize this business model from every other business in the universe, <laughs> but not us. Right. And not us. We don't have a, I don't have a DC comics rep. I don't have a diamond rep anymore. I haven't had a diamond rep in a year and a half. And this, even when I had them, they're not true salespeople. You call them up when you have a problem. My sales reps have never called me and said like, oh, we're having a sale on this. Oh, this Batman 89 is going to have this character called punchline in it. You might want to order more of it. That's an example from the last 
three months, which like that book sold out before it hit the shelf. And then I'm, and I'm trying to like be a decent fellow and I'm selling it at cover price for $3. And then people are turning around and selling it on eBay for 50 bucks. And it's like one, why shouldn't I do that then? Right. I'm trying to be a nice guy about this, but damn. And then two, uh, I never got the chance to order more to sell more of it. They really screwed us recently. I'm sorry you got me heated now, but they did this recently with Walking Dead. They can't. Yeah, I was that just going to ask about that. It's some random. What was it? 193, 197, whatever it was. They canceled. Not only did they cancel it at a random number, but they had already solicited and advertised, and I had ordered two more issues of that fucking book. Pardon my language. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. <laughs> and so sure. now. Pardon oh, my now. Portuguese. You have to bleep me out. So uh, ho- hopefully you can you can censor me out for your audience. But so now I can't. This is like PG-13. I can use one. That was my one. So, no, no, no. They, 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 uh, don't, they won't care. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. So the passion is real. We love it. That's right. And so <laughs> then they say, by the way, this is the last issue of the book. Sorry. And then they cancel their orders. Okay, great. Creatively, you just fooled everybody. I don't know what you gained from that creatively, but whatever. It just sounds like a stunt. It would have been fine if I had known so I could order more and sell more, uh, but I didn't. And I'll give you, I'll do you even one better. I don't know what good it is to the distributor or the publisher because I never got the chance to order more. So Image didn't sell more of Walking Dead 193 than it would have otherwise. Because it never gave me the chance to buy more. The consumer got the chance and the consumers, you know, can take them off my shelf and make the book disappear. That's great. But the point is the pu- the publisher doesn't sell the book to my subscribers. I sell the book to my subscribers. The publisher sells books to me. So if they want me to buy more books, you think they would tell me about that stuff, but they don't. Part of the reason, there's a lot of reasons probably why, but I've realized I've been ranting long enough. So anyways, long, the long and short of it is speculators are very difficult to plan for and they represent a systemic problem in this industry, which is that because of poor sales channels and because it's not run like a real business, I never get the chance to order commensurate to the interest that people are going to have. Yeah, and that that Walking Dead example is so funny to me because wasn't the solicit for it fake as well? Like there was no clue in the solicit that it was going to be the final issue. Nothing. No clue. And then they solicited 194. And they solicited 195. I thought I had two more copies of this. Yeah, I assumed they were gearing up for like a 200. Fine. It's fine if you want a surprise end of the series. But you got to tip me off so I can buy more so that I can then sell more. This way, everybody, myself, the publisher, the distributor, everyone would make more money. Now, yeah, Image got to do second prints, third prints. Yeah, Great. Congratulations. But if they could... I mean, but speaking for as a retailer, my customers aren't as interested in the second or third prints. Everybody, exactly. I mean, they'll buy them, but, but they want to, they want the first one. And again, if it were any other business, you'd say to me, Carmelo, I got a hot product coming out. I'm going to surprise everybody. Walking Dead's going to be the last issue. You want more? I'd be like, hell yeah. Give me three times as many of them. And then I wouldn't gouge them. I wouldn't need to hawk them up to $50 a book. I'd sell them right for freaking cover price. I would just sell 10 times as many of them. And 
like, I don't want to sound, you know, greedy about it, but what I'm trying to say is if you want the industry to go around and you're trying to sell books by doing stuff like that, then you have to give the guy buying the books, me, the chance to actually do it. Yeah. It seemed like image wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Like they wanted to make this really uh, cheeky statement about how they tricked everybody. And now first printing final runs only went to subscribers and maybe a few lucky other people who happened to get a copy off the shelf. Otherwise, everybody else, you get the second and third printings if you're really interested, as you say. And that probably pissed off right. a lot of speculators that they just nope. they had no shot at it. But it also, like you said, it robbed shops of having an opportunity to sell a lot of one particular book. Right. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, yep. And it's partly our fault. I'm not going to put it all on the publisher and the distributor. It's partly our fault because back in the day, this may shock you to hear this. Back in the day, we used to get, and when I say the day, I mean when I was in high school working at a comic book store. So I mean like 2004, like early 2000s. Every week, the comic shop would get a stack of advanced solicits. It would be a stack of next Wednesday's comic books. All right, so we're only talking one week in advance, but it was in advance. And it would basically be everything Marvel and DC put out. Image would only sometimes do it if they had a big title. So I could read every book that was going to come out the next week, and I could be knowledgeable about the product and sell it to the customer. Like, once again, every other business in existence. But, but... Uh, comic shop owners, um, by and large are an unsophisticated bunch and would take to the internet, um, and maybe not the owners, maybe it was employees, maybe it was whoever, but they would take to the internet and post spoilers because it was super exciting to be the first person to know. And then they took our toys away and the publisher said, well, if you guys can't keep this stuff secret to yourself, then we're not going to send you advanced solicits anymore. And it's like, well, thanks for ruining it for the rest of us because I've got a business to keep open and you just took away one of my tools. <laughs> so, like, you can't trust I hear, people with anything. I hear the frustration there and I see that you understand me because you. I can see that I've made my point clear because I can hear it on the other end, the same frustration <laughs> that I feel in my heart. Yeah. Well, we do see this in the Star Wars community where uh, C2E2, that was in February, wasn't it, Mark? Oh, sorry, Mark. Jeez. Um, Rick, that was Who in... the hell's Mark? I don't know who Mark is. Like, who's Mark? What? Yeah, I... that was... Uh, you... that... Not with Mark. Oh! Yeah, would... <laughs> but Rick, you were at C2E2 and they gave out um, like advanced copies of the Rise of Skywalker novel and you know, fans are waiting for this novel so they can get extra insight into the movie and here like it hits the sh it hits this convention and people are like taking screen grabs of the pages and throwing them all online and there's it's like well, come on guys hold, hold on there kevin um i need to i, I gotta i gotta correct you real quick i i did not go i did not go to a c2e2 um you know living in chicago you know it was one of those things i was at work and i saw uh, like on my break, you know, Delray had put out that like we have a small amount of copies to sell, you know, two weeks before release. And um, I had a friend that was there and I was like, Mike, can you can you hook it up? And he was like, yeah, I'll see what I can do. And uh, I don't know, 40 minutes later, he sends me a picture of the book and I'm like, Venmo, done. And that's how I, I, I and I picked it up the Monday after C2E2. Um so, I mean, I did th that's how I got my copy early, you know, and I, you know, managed to read it. But yeah, like, it's like you said, you know, there were spoilers online and, and, you know, it's one of those things, especially with, with 
with a print media when spoilers go out and it's a, you know a single panel of a comic book or two sentences in a novel everything is out of context so then everybody gets all up in arms and especially with you know star wars fans being the assholes that we are you know you take a line and it's like well what the hell does that mean and that ruins everything and that breaks the whole story because nobody can be patient enough to just say well let me see what the rest of this thing is around it because everybody wants to have an opinion validated immediately you know that's Yep. That's that that's our that's our global community. Is it like everybody is so in touch with each other so that when something does come out, conversation springs up and naturally arguments spring up because there's just more people jumping into the pool that want to talk about it. You know, so it 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 does it it's frustrating when stuff like that happens. And I can imagine as a as a shop owner, if like um what was it? Um it was one of the Batman books where he was he was gonna marry Catwoman. But then, yeah. like, the New York Times or something ran the spoiler for the issue, like, a week or 10 days before the issue came out. Like, why would you do that? Yep. You know, yep. that, you know, there was some kind of a, I don't even know what the hell it was, but there was some kind of a twist within the book. And yeah, like, and well, it massacred the sales for the book. And then, in fact, DC had, because DC didn't put them under any kind of, like, no spoiler ban or whatever, DC had to make the book returnable. Uh, and they took it on the chin because we were all so pissed off. Um but yeah, it, it just tanked the sale of the book. Oh. <laughs> you, Very would, you would think you would think yeah. that they could keep their mouths shut. But you know, gotta got get those clicks. Yeah, exactly. Oh it, man, I could go on and on about how much I hate clickbait. Oh my oh boy. I, I, I made a t shirt for our, our T public store saying say no to clickbait. Like I I absolutely abhor clickbait it, it drives me up the up the wall and one of the, a specific star wars example from the last couple of years what came out of uh, charles soul's darth vader number 25 where it was sort of implied that uh darth sidious emperor palpatine was anakin was anakin's father and holy cow did the clickbait fly holy shit it was everywhere <laughs> and to this day yeah, that, that, that was a mess to this day it doesn't matter how many times people from Lucasfilm say, no, 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 that's not what the issue is implying. It's it's that Anakin maybe thought that could be a thing. People still think that because of the clickbait from Screen Rants and, you know, all those other junk sites, they they ran with it. It was this uh, Star Wars comic confirms that. Like, can you let people actually read the comic first, please? Yeah, that's, in, that's insane. And I hate, I hate that. Uh, I hate... Director confirms, writer confirms, uh, no. The writer or the artist or the director, they could have confirmed it when they made the product. Uh, so that's not a headline. Here's also something that's not a headline. Um, fans are outraged about such and such. Uh, <laughs> what, they, what they mean is two or three assholes on Twitter are outraged about <laughs> such and such. That's not a headline either. That's not news. I don't care. But it, what these what this clickbait does is it gives it. They love controversy, so they're just feeding the divisiveness to get you to click on a headline, and they're giving a voice to a small minority of very angry and thoughtless people who are sometimes very very out of line with the things they say. But then you hear the headline. There it is. Fans outraged. Fans want a recall. Fans fans start petition. To remake The Last Jedi. What are you, what are you kidding me? First of all, 
Before they ran that article, the fans who started that petition were like three guys in one cocker spaniel until y'all put it in a news article. And second of all, no one cares. Disney's not going to remake The Last Jedi because like three guys on Twitter signed a freaking uh, uh, petition. But then they get a news article. And then, then one clickbait site sources another clickbait site. My favorite thing in the world is when I click on an article and the source is, we got this covered. Aww. It's not even we got this covered. It's that we got this covered as the source of another article. Forget about it. I am off that website so fast. I burn a hole in my mouse. It's so bad. Like that. <laughs> I there's got it. They have to be breaking some kind of law. They are so up their own rear ends and they're so dirty about how they go about it. And here we are ranting now. Um, but they've, they, <laughs> they spin out multiple groups on Facebook. So they've, People that are affiliated with We've Got This Covered spin out a DC group, a Star Wars group, another Star Wars group, a Marvel group. Every fandom they've created groups for, and it all sources back to We've Got This Covered. So they, they've they all these clickbait channels and, you know, the the people that live and thrive on this uh, fanboy rage, like they're, they've become like these self-fulfilling or self-perpetuating machines. And even if they're not exactly. a big, even if they're not a very big group relative to the rest of fandom, there's still enough oxygen being generated that they can keep doing what they do, and it's disgusting. Yep, it's it's actually it's a problem systemic in journalism globally. I was a reporter in college for several years, and and a problem with journalism generally is you say like, well, if you're going to be fair and balanced, you have to give both sides of a story equal screen time, right? And the answer to that is is actually no, because if the opinion of, of a couple angry people is only, you know, two or three people, but then you give them equal screen time to the vast majority, 99% of people who support a different view. Well, you just, you know, you gave a level playing field to uh, this view that frankly should have been stamped out. Right. So the, the, the idea that, you know, fair and balanced journalism means we need to represent the, the six angry guys who want to sign a petition to, to recast Ariel because they can't stand a black little mermaid. Like we don't need to give them a voice. Why should we give them a voice? No. How is that balanced? They That's deserve balanced no platform. Journalism. No, platform. Right, exactly. You're giving them a platform. Exactly. Right. And you know, I, I made it a bigger issue than it was because just to make a point that like this, these problems are not unique to us in our nerd fandoms. Um, but uh, maybe we could learn from, from how everyone else is trying to deal with these things. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, this being a Star Wars podcast, I, I wanted to take a few minutes just getting your take on something. And I don't know how how much insight you'll have on this, but like we've spoken on this podcast before about, uh, you know, a lot of comics that end up becoming really valuable aren't necessarily first issues, but like maybe a variant cover or a first appearance of a character. But it seems to me, and Rick, I don't know if you agree. I know that Nathan and I have had this conversation. It seems that Star Wars is largely immune to that. Like, the old Marvel Star Wars comics, they've shot up in value since Disney took over. But, like, since Marvel started publishing Star Wars again in 2015, like, to my knowledge, aside from Dr. Aphra, like, there's not really any Star Wars comics that have, like, separated themselves from the pack to say, like, oh, this one's uh, suddenly gone up in, in, collected, uh, in price. But what, because when it comes to Star Wars the valuable stuff in star Wars is in toys or statues or props. Like, do you know why it is that star Wars comics seem to not 
operate by the same laws as like a Marvel or DC, for example? Is it just because there's that other outlet of toys and that, that whole industry? Well, that's interesting. I, first of all, I don't know for sure that there haven't been any valuable Star Wars comics since Marvel started launching them. And I'm sure, I'm sure some are more valuable than others, but I'll, I'll just, for purposes of your question, I'll just go ahead and accept that, uh, that they, for, for whatever reason, aren't, aren't as valuable or don't, um, appreciate in price the way other comics at large do. So it, taking that as a given, um, I don't know that I agree. It has to do with the toys or collectibles because co- superhero comics have that too. There's tons of superhero toys and, and statues and some of them are quite valuable. Um, so to the extent that is true, I think if I'm, if I may, I think the reason is because Star Wars comic books don't hold the same place in the lore that superhero comic books do. The Star Wars comic books, even if they're canon, are always going to be ancillary. Always. Yeah. The movies, the film, that comes first. A lot of people were upset when the expanded universe was discarded for for the new um you know, the, the new trilogy of films and without making any comment about whether or not that was a good thing, I will say, why would that, why did that surprise anybody? Did anybody really think that Disney was going to spend billions with a B on star Wars and then be beholden to some random dark horse comic from the late nineties? Forget about it. There's no way, not a chance in hell. So with that said, even if these new comic books are canon or part of the new canon, they're always going to be just the comic books. They're always going to be just the books. Star, the heart of Star Wars is the films. And now to a lesser extent, but a growing extent, TV shows like The Mandalorian. Um, that's pro- If I had to guess, I would guess that's why. They have little significance on the lore in the, in the sense of the importance of the story. Um, interesting stuff might happen, but nothing that's going to fundamentally um, impact Star Wars. Whereas comic book superheroes, that's like, that is where they came from. And they can make the movies, and the movies may be awesome, but they will still not hold the same like holy place in our hearts that the comic books do. And I think that may be why. That, yeah, and again, like I'm not sure that it's my statement is true. my thesis statement is true either. But I like your answer a lot. That when it comes to Star Wars, the Holy Grail is the films, TV shows, and in yeah. superhero stuff, it is definitely the the, the printed page stuff. I, I, and your, I your question that. <laughs> was a good one. Your your question was a good one, which is why I just took the premise as a given. I, I think it would have been a cop out or unfair to the the very thoughtful question to just be like, I don't know if that's true or not. It, it might well be true. So let's take it as true and explore the question because it's fun to explore questions. Yeah, no, I think I I think you answered it perfectly. To be honest, I'm now going. Yeah, that's a very it's a very simple and common sense answer for sure. Like now I'm going. Why did I even ask? That makes so much sense. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But I mean, you know, everything, the, the answer is always simple once we have it and can work backward. But, you know, I think the thing about Star Wars fans, especially guys like yourselves who who spend so much time um, giving it the thought that it deserves that you even go so far as to have a, a podcast about it is it's you, you guys take this material very seriously the way I take my fandoms very seriously. And so the idea that I could add anything of value to that conversation uh, makes me very happy because I, 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 I take this stuff 
you obviously it's my business, my livelihood. I take this stuff very seriously. And I'd like, I'm a philosopher as well. So I love thinking about ideas. Um, so the chance to like take a question like that or any of the questions that you ask about star Wars, um, I love taking that stuff as seriously as it deserves. Awesome. Um, so just, we're, we're, I guess we're going to wrap it up in a few minutes here, but what, like, what are your fandoms? Like which superheroes do sort of turn your crank and what, what are the ones that you really, you dive into each month or the movies that you like to go back to like on a, on a yeah. unending basis? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, you know, I think, uh, personally, Spider-Man, Superman and the Hulk were always kind of my three and, and probably right up there was Iron Man and, uh, and the movies have certainly, uh, just, just amplified that because they've all gotten a pretty decent treatment. Um, I, um, I would, so I would say superheroes are probably my number one and of them probably Superman followed closely by Spider-Man. I watched, I, I love all the MCU movies. I really enjoyed Avengers Endgame. Um, I love the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. I'll go back to those a million times. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to, I, I love this movie. No one else loves this movie. Superman Returns is my favorite Superman movie. So I will watch that, uh, anytime. Um, you know, and then comic book wise, um, you know, my favorite graphic novel of all time is probably Kingdom Come. I, that That's one that I could read more or less whenever. Uh, if you've never read that by uh, Mark Wade and Alex Ross, that's one that gets me really excited. Um, but I think that's the obvious one. I think to answer your question in kind of a fun way, the sort of thing that really gets me like dorked out that you might not think is uh, is Godzilla. I, I, for some reason, just love Godzilla. And it really gets me really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. The giant lizard destroying a city and the guy I'm talking, the guy in the rubber suit, the whole, I love it. And like, I just got, my brother just bought me this NECA action figure of Godzilla from King Kong versus Godzilla. And it's, it looks just like a guy in a rubber suit. Like he's got the big goofy eyes and everything. And it's just perfect. I got the criterion collection for Christmas. It's this big oversized coffee table with original artwork and it's gorgeous. And they're all in 4k and it's like, yeah. Godzilla. I don't know why, but I love it. There is something about Godzilla that every time they do it, like I'm, I'm interested and I, I want to know more. Like there is something inherently interesting to me about a giant dinosaur stomping a city. I don't know. Isn't that cool? It is. I love Kaiju. (laughs) I love giant monsters. I'm so excited for Kong versus Godzilla. I, I had a rip roaring good time at Godzilla King of the Monsters, you know, and when like when Godzilla came out in 2013 or 2012 uh, and everyone was like, there's not enough monster in it. And then the new one came out and everyone's like too much monsters. I'm like, shut up. This movie could have had no people for all I care. Could have just been, I don't need a single line of spoken dialogue. Just two hours of Godzilla bitch slapping King Ghidorah would have been fine. That was, uh, that was my stance on Transformers. I'm like, I don't care how bad it is. I just want to see 30 foot robots pounding the shit out of each other. That's it. I don't care what it. the movie's That's about. All That's all I I do not care if the plot is dumb. I do not care. My only complaint about Transformers is there's too many people in it. I just want robots. Pretty you much. Know, the same thing. Well, yeah, Michael Bay and, and gang—they they tested me on that. They said, "Okay, re- are you sure about this?" Okay, and then they gave served up like <laughs> movies that are flirting with three hours, and I'm like, "Okay, enough." <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, maybe that was a bit bit much. Maybe dial it back a little bit, Michael Bay. Uh, but yeah, so that stuff that gets me excited. But you know, I generally a lover of a lot of a lot of fandoms. You know, I love Star Wars. I love Star Trek. I love Lord of the Rings. Like those are the ones where probably certainly Lord of the Rings. If you quizzed me on on expanded universe stuff, or if you quizzed me on like Silmarillion or things like that, forget it. I'm, I won't be able to tell you the first thing about. I probably can't even name half the characters because there's so many of them. But I'll sit down and watch them for 15 hours straight or, you know, I'll read the books. Um, I like them. It's just, I don't quite, uh, how do I put it? I don't quite engage with the material to the level that I do with like superhero stuff, you know? Yeah. So, but that's why, that's why I love about comic con. And maybe I can leave you with this closing thought. And maybe this is what's nice about comic book stores too, is I think when you're in a place like a comic con or at a comic book store, I think everybody has their thing. And even if it's not the same thing as yours, there's this recognition that comes over you when you see and you feel that enthusiasm. And it's like, I don't care if it's Godzilla or if it's Star Wars or if it's Sailor Moon. But when I look at you and I see you and I see you're dressed up like Sailor Moon at a convention and I think to myself, yeah, you get it. It's different than my thing, but you got a thing. And we all got a thing. And that's what brings us together. Beautifully said, man. Beautifully said. And I think that is a, a uh, Rick, do you have anything else you want to you throw at Carmelo before we start to wrap it up? Yeah, I, I actually I have one last question, but I want to say, uh, Carmelo, first, um, thanks for coming on and, and talking with us, um, kind of, you know, sharing some insight with the business and then, you know, just general fandom. We, we really appreciate it. Um, but, you know, I wanted to leave off with this um, kind of a twofold thing. Once all of this kind of passes, blows over, ends, however this thing sees its way through, what do you feel the industry is going to be like afterwards and what do you hope it's going to be like afterwards? Well, it's, it's early to say how it's going to shake out and there's a non zero chance that it goes back to relative normal. Um, if mm -hmm. the bands were to lift relatively soon, diamond might be able to, to start shipping comics again. And while a lot of retailers might not be able to reopen, um, a lot would and a lot more might, might be able to with some help. So it's, there's a, there's a non-zero chance it goes back to normal. There's also a chance that the really crazy outcome would be for diamond to uh, go under or to be supplanted by other distributors. And now you have multiple distributors again. And, and that could be a good thing. Competition tends to breed higher quality. Um, but it's not clear that that uh, would be a very uh, bloodless transition of power, you know? So I think that would be, um, chaotic at best. Um, I hope what comes out of this is I hope people in the industry and I hope customers take a look at how things work and say like, what can we do better? I think like I had a lot of ideas as a store of what I could do better. Um, but I need everyone else to kind of work with me on that now. I need the distributors and the publishers to meet me halfway. So I would hope that we can all look and say like, hey, wait a minute. We all really missed comic book stores. These were really valuable. Let's think twice about going digital. Let's think twice about getting rid of the local comic book store. And let's see what we can do to, to keep them going. Um, and I think that would be my hope. Uh, the other thing I hope as a creator is that I, I – hope that it, it breeds more indie comic books because I think if, if Marvel and DC are, are no longer the, you know, they no longer have the chokehold on, on 
the number one way to buy comics, which is retailers, um, then people who sell independent books digitally or on Amazon, like they're essentially using the same channels as Marvel and DC. So that could level the playing field and you could see a higher quality of, of comic book emerge because uh, it won't just be locked up by the same IPs. So those are kind of my thoughts, uh, my ruminations on, on where it should go. Yeah. And I mean, well, just to tack on know, to that. Since, Sorry, go ahead, Rick. I was going to say, you know, since, you know, we are, you know, like a primarily a, a Star Wars podcast, you know, and, and thematically hope is such a big thing. You know, we can only hope that after all of this, brick and mortars become even more of a hub than they have been uh, for people. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate and I appreciate you saying that. And I think you're right that that's something I love about Star Wars, certainly, is, I, you know, and anyone who's read Magnificent knows that even with my darker material, I like to have. I, I like to have hope. I'm a very hopeful guy. So I think that's why I, I always like resonated with Star Wars. And, you know, I, I think you're right. I think uh, there's a lot of good reasons to hope. I've seen a lot of good come out of this whole thing. I've seen, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people have suffered and that's terrible. I've also seen a lot of people come together. I've seen a lot of people uh, unite and and we've all been alone and isolated. And yet somehow we're all still together. And I think that's really beautiful. So far, so good, man. <laughs> uh, just to tack on to Rick's question, like aside from the obvious, which is to get into your into your local comic book shop and buy something, what can is there anything that you can think of that fans, uh, whether they're regulars or irregulars or just they they don't go to comic book shops, what can people do to help lift up these these shops once things get back to normal? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. And it's, it's, I don't mean to sound like a one track mind when I say this, but I, I believe in this philosophically, you vote with your dollar, right? You vote for the kind of world that you want with how you spend your money. And if you like a world where we make, you know, uh, you know, sustainable toilet paper, then you buy toilet paper made of bamboo, which is like an example my wife does, right? So like she's voting with our money for sustainable practices there. And so if that's the thing you care about is that physical space, you vote with it by choosing to buy your comics, choosing to buy your graphic novels from your local retailer as opposed to Amazon or as opposed to somewhere online, right? So like shopping in the stores is the is the way you support them. Um, but if you're if you're a regular customer, that's even easier. It's like, well, just get the stuff that you said you wanted to get, right? That's not that hard. Um, I think it's easier though now than ever to support a business without spending money there. You can leave them a nice review. You can share their post or comment on their posts on social media, right? Like these things cost nothing, um, but they help participate and help spread the word. Um, the big thing that would make me really happy is when I have or plan events and I, I'm typically pretty lucky with this. This has gone very well for me, but like, Come to my stuff. Come to my events. Next time I rent out a movie theater, come. Let me take you to a movie. You know, next time I, I bring someone to the store for a signing, come by. Come say hi. If it's a, Even if it's not a super famous person, but it's someone you've heard of, like, just drop by. Because that, just being a part of that community is, um, you know, it perpetuates the community. And then it's not even about spending money. It's just about being there and being together. The money, that stuff, that comes naturally. That that will follow. But the most important thing is that we is that we come together. So 
be be good fans in stores and outside of stores. Be nicer to each other. Be more patient. Don't judge out of context like you were talking about earlier. Like, don't give in to clickbait. We can decide how the conversation goes. The conversation does not have to be about how divided and angry we are or about the six people with their stupid petitions. The 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 conversation could be about how excited we all are to hang out next time we get to go see a movie together because damn i really miss going to the movies so that's what i'll i'll leave you with there sorry to ramble on so much it's oh no carmelo this has been brilliant this has been a great time uh, I, I thank you so much for joining us in, in this episode man i, I learned a ton i hope uh, people listening got a, a lot out of this as well it's been fantastic i really appreciate that guys uh, anytime this is a lot of fun for me and uh, and thank you so much yeah, and, and and best of luck through this, and best of luck with the. I I we we heard your, your your routine. You're not that busy. You don't sound very busy. But good luck with all of it anyway. Now we go back to playing Doom. All right, guys. <laughs> all right, everybody. That's it for this episode of Cannon Fodder. Uh, you can find me at Tumbling Saber. Uh, you can find Rick at Cadbane's Bounty on Twitter, and Carmelo. Where, I mean, if people want to follow you on social media, where would they find you? Uh, you know, the best thing to do probably is join our Facebook group, the Chimera's Comics Community. It's a safe and judgment-free space to be a fan online. It's the my favorite group of fans on the internet. So want to uh, maybe join us there is probably a great way. I have a Facebook page for Chimera's Comics. Um, I'm not super active on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm there at Chimera's Comics. Um, so yeah, probably best way to connect with me is on Facebook. Excellent. So everybody go do everybody go do that right now. And uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. And may the force be with you.